When her husband's job took Sarah Zasky and their kids to live in Germany for six years, she suspected that things might be a bit different there. Playgrounds in Germany are like nothing I've ever seen. They are so much more imaginative. All that fun also comes with a more hands-off approach to parenting. There was this time in Berlin. I saw this child, about eight or nine, dangling from a high structure. And that's the moment where I yelled, Achtung, which means, you know, attention or watch out. And I looked around for his parents, and none of the other adults were concerned. Coming up, an American mom schools us on the German art of raising self-reliant children. Stephanie Rosenblum recommends getting away by yourself now and then. She really likes Tuscany in the fall. I mean, the hillside turns golden, which is such a wonderful pairing with those terracotta rooftops. And listeners check in with their travel plans. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Raising toddlers or teenagers in Germany can be a surprising adventure for American parents. We'll find out why in just a bit. And get ideas for your next travel adventure as we check in on listener travel plans a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Traveling with the wrong person can really put a damper on your trip. New York Times writer Stephanie Rosenblum argues that it's often better to just explore on your own. In her book, Alone Time, she looks at the ideal season for doing just that in four of her favorite cities for solo travelers. Stephanie, it's nice to have you back. I'm delighted to be here. Paris. Paris in the springtime. Why Paris and and why in the springtime? Well, Paris anytime, but in in the Mm -hmm. spring when, you know, when the whole city's coming back to life and everybody's been cooped up for the winter and the the flowers are beginning to bloom. I mean, it's such a magical time to be there. And also for me personally, the trip that sort of inspired the book happened in the springtime in Paris. It was an assignment for the times and that sort of made me realize that I wanted to explore this alone thing more deeply, and I decided to go back in the same season that I was originally there. But it just seemed like the right time. You know, the summer, people would be away. And so it was just glorious at that time of year. Paris is in a good mood in the springtime. And, That's right. But, but I would say Paris is, it is so darn romantic. And mm-hmm. uh, you're there strolling among all those romantic couples, yet you're alone. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you're, you're walking out to the tip of the Ile de la Cité, and there's these beautiful silhouetted couples in the sunset, and you're alone. How do you talk to me just about walking sure. and being lost in the in the romance of Paris? It is romantic, but there is a romance that you can have alone, right? You have the romance is with the city. Mm. I can speak to this person. Look, I, I was in Paris alone twice before I met my husband. And my feeling about it was I was not going to wait to go to Paris until I was married or until I had the right person. Mm -hmm. And frankly, and you go with the wrong person and it's not a good trip. So it's more lonely than being alone. Yeah, that's right. And I loved it. And then it was magical. I remember a moment I was sitting at a cafe on the left bank. And at this point, I had met my husband. We hadn't been married yet. And I was looking across the way at a place I had eaten, I guess, over a year ago before. And I was single at the time that I had eaten mm. in this place. And I was reflecting on all the things that had happened. Mm. And so I, I was able to see it, you know, in both ways. And what a gift that was. And so now, like, of course, I love to go to Paris with him. And we do. But if he hadn't come along, I still have, would have gone. 
I love your idea of being, you're not alone, you're with Paris. Absolutely, and with all the people you meet there. And you're sitting there in a cafe that is just the epitome of your Parisian dreams, and you're having your pain au chocolat, and a little (laughs) tiny brown bird has landed on the wicker chair next to you. And the bird is just pecking at the wicker, and you're tossing little bits of your pain au chocolat to the bird. You've made a friend, and then you walk under those mansart beautiful facades, and you, you step into the park, and, and it's this just delightful cityscape with elegant, venerable buildings and, and lovingly tended gardens, and you're alone with Paris. It's a beautiful thing. It is. Oh, my goodness. Let's go to Istanbul in the summer. Why Istanbul <laughs> and why in the summer? Well, there's only four seasons, but... <laughs> yeah. And yes, it's hot, but, you know, because the city is so oriented toward the Bosporus and because there's so much happening on the water... And there are a lot of places that come to life, you know, in the in the summertime there. It has a seaside feeling, and so it feels right to watch ships come and go in the summertime on the water. It was magical, I and mean, it was gorgeous to have that experience. Mm. And I also like it hot, so, you know, if you're someone who likes cooler weather, you might want to switch some of these around. But <laughs> for, for me in the summer, you know, to have a city that is so, that, that the water is so central, I mean, not just central, it splits the city, right? You have the Asia side, you have the European side, and you can go between them. I mean, even if you don't get off the ferry, and just keep going back and forth. Like, what a delightful thing mm. that is to do. I love that. And I can understand the summer. It seems like the, mm-hmm. the crazy people have a little more energy in the summer. And uh, <laughs> I'm talking about crazy people like the character that has a big wheelbarrow full of cucumbers, and he'll, he'll peel it for <laughs> you, and he'll slap some salt on it, and he'll sell it to you for 50 cents. And then the next guy that wants to shine your shoes, and if you say you don't have enough money, he'll say he'll just shine one. Uh, you know, <laughs> to be yes. sitting there on the on the ferry where a million people come in, literally a million people use those ferries every day, crossing the Bosporus yes. from Asia to Europe and all that sloppy energy on the on the harbor with the chop <laughs> in the water and the tipsy boat selling fish right out of the fisher's net. It's just you're lost in this poetry of, of Istanbul that mixes today and yesterday and people yeah. and history and delightful street food. It's... I just want to go there right now. And that is also a great walking city in many parts, and so that's also why it's nice to be there in good weather. You can get lost on that grand boulevard, Iskadal Kadasi. Yes. It's so crowded throughout the workday, the shopping day, that the tram line that, that's supposed to run up and down the street, <laughs> it physically cannot do it. I mean, you're walking on the tram line, and it's just the tram just goes, well, no, we can't run. There's, it's just a human traffic jam, and you're lost in the middle of that as a traveler. You don't need to be with a travel partner there. You'll probably lose your travel partner. It's so crowded. And people are all ready to clown around and joke and connect with you. And it's just a a world of opportunity. Stephanie Rosenblum writes for the New York Times travel section. Her assignments have inspired her to expound on the advantages of traveling by yourself any time of year. Her book is Alone Time. And there's more on her website at stephanierosenblum.com. Let's go to Florence in the autumn. Yes, I mean, the hillside turns golden, which is such a wonderful pairing with those, you know, terracotta rooftops, the whole sort of yellow, you know, burnt sienna Mm. with the cobblestone. Like, And also, too, Florence is always full of tourists now, you know, any time of year, which also makes it, you know, feel really easy to get around and to navigate. But in the fall, it's a little calmer. You know, Henry James wrote about that. He said it was a brilliant time to be there in October because it's still warm enough to walk around, but not so hot and a little less crowded. And I, I wanted to have that experience of, you know, being there 
mm. in the season of chestnuts and when you could mm-hmm. walk into a church and have a little bit more room and sort of commune with the city a bit more. And its heritage and its high culture. And you don't need to go to see the Uffizi Gallery or Michelangelo's David mm. with the hordes of travelers. The beautiful thing about Florence is there's a dozen beautiful artistic moments without any crowds for everyone there is with a mob scene of tourists. And when you're alone... You can just be there, standing in front of uh, Donatello's David instead of Michelangelo's David, and you're all alone with that wonder. And sometimes when you're having an intimate moment with an art masterpiece, it's better to be alone than with a travel partner. It's just you and that piece of cultural wonder that you've always admired from afar, and, and now you're together. And in the evening, the city, the tourists are all back in their hotel rooms, and, and the floodlights are on. And the city has this wonderful art of choosing good buskers and telling them exactly where they can play their music. And you walk around the city at night, and it's just like a, it's like a busker's festival. And you can just <laughs> pop in on each one of these little mini concerts, and it's cool of the evening, and you're just thankful to be there. You wrote in your book, uh, Stephanie, about the Stendhal syndrome. <laughs> to describe the Stendhal syndrome, because I just think that's a fascinating thing for anybody risking going to Florence. Basically, it's, it's named after the author of the book, The Red and the Black. And the idea is that he saw so much beautiful Renaissance art in Florence. He was overwhelmed by it, and he started sweating and fainting. And what's interesting is many, many tourists have reported similar symptoms, just feeling sort of overwhelmed by so much incredible, beautiful, Mm. ornate uh, sculpture and paintings, these masterworks, one after the other, that they've exhibited these symptoms. And so they named it after this novelist. It can happen. I mean, this guy was a romantic uh, novelist there on the grand tour in Florence. And, you know, this over-the-top romanticism of uh, aristocratic old travelers going to swoon in front of uh, the uh, beautiful Venus, you know. But I've, for 30 years, been taking travelers to Florence. And Mm -hmm. I have had tourists that have pretty much lost it in Florence, and uh, they didn't realize it. They didn't even know there was such a thing, but they had the Stendhal syndrome. <laughs> for, for their own privacy, I'm not going to explain what they did or what happened, sure. but it is a powerful, powerful thing when you get overwhelmed by the culture and the, the artistic beauty and romance of Florence. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephanie Rosenblum. Her book is Alone Time, Four Seasons, Four Cities, and the Pleasures of Solitude. And we're just taking a quick run through these towns with Stephanie. She's talked about Paris in the springtime, Istanbul in the summer, Florence in the fall. And we're going to spend the winter right now, a little trip to Stephanie's hometown, I understand, New York City. So talk about enjoying the wonders of New York City alone in the winter. Yes. Well, part of the reason that I did New York City is because I it's my home. And it's obviously it's a world-class city, but I wanted people to realize that any of the things that, you know, you and I are talking about, about falling in love with the city, about spending a little time by yourself, about sort of savoring and opening up to the world can be done even if you're not a global traveler, even if you're, you know, if you're mm-hmm. not getting to travel as often as you and I are traveling. But in New York in the winter, the snow, it's magical. And it's Christmas time. We have the lights everywhere. The trees are wrapped with twinkle lights. We've got the wreaths in the parks. And, we've, you know, the street lamps have little uh, red velvet bow ties mm. on them. Mm. Uh, in the West Village, you know, people decorate. 
different kinds of wreaths or they'll have you know, these stone lions out in front on either side of the townhouses on the steps so they'll put ribbons around them and it's just it's just beautiful it's a lovely time of year and of course you know when it's cold it gives you license to get a very chocolatey like a hot chocolate from you know one of many great places in New York or tea and we've got some great places here that are really welcoming to New Yorkers or just visitors to just come in and basically set up shop and use the Wi-Fi and, you know, just get a cup of coffee and you can spend part of an afternoon like watching the snowfall on a city street. I mean, it's lovely. It really is. And for some reason, I always end up in New York in the winter. And I would preface it by saying you got to have the proper attire. You're going to be out for it's a huge city and you're going to be out for long stretches. And there's something about those canyons in Manhattan between the skyscrapers where the wind just howls down there. But if you're properly attired and you're you're cozy, there's sort of the 21st century version of all that old fashioned Christmas charm out in the streets in the winter of New York City. Absolutely. Hey, Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing a a very positive and inspiring few moments about enjoying great cities, even if you're solo. Best wishes with your writing, and congratulations on Alone Time. Thank you. We have more with Stephanie Rosenblum in the Travel with Rick Steves show archives. You'll find audio links with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Visiting another country by yourself is one thing, but how difficult can it be to get your young children comfortable with another language and culture when your family moves to Europe? Sarah Zaski thought relocating to Germany would mean a more disciplined atmosphere for raising her kids, at least more than you might find in the U.S. Her preconceptions were in for a surprise. She explains what she learned from the German approach to parenting next on Travel with Rick Steves. When I was a kid, traveling with my family in Germany in the 1970s, my parents were aghast at the easygoing, hands-off style of parenting they saw there. Contrast that to the typical anxieties of American parents today, who schedule their kids' activities and then worry about them all the time. Sarah Zaski found more than a few surprises while raising her young children in Berlin. She writes about it in Achtun Baby, an American mom on the German art of raising self-reliant children. Sarah, this must have taken some getting used to. So where did you come from and what took you to Germany? We moved to Germany from Oregon, basically because my husband's a scientist and he got a great offer for a short-term position there that actually turned out to be quite longer. And at the time, my daughter was two and a half and my son was born in Berlin. We stayed in Germany for about six and a half years until we had an opportunity to come back to the States. So just how hands-off is parenting in Germany? Well, I didn't notice it right away when I first moved to Berlin, and I had a lot of stereotypes in my head about what German parents might be like. I thought they would be strict and controlling. Then I went to a playground, and I saw this child, about eight or nine, dangling from a high structure And that's the moment where I yelled, Achtung, which means, you know, attention or watch out. And I looked around for his parents, and none of the other adults were concerned. And that's when I started to say, oh, wow, this is really different, because in America, that just wouldn't happen. You know, it's funny to hear you say that story, because I was picturing the uh, strict military father in The Sound of Music when he'd blow the whistle, (laughs) and the kids would all come running down, and they'd stand in attention, sort of Achtung baby. And you found just the opposite. In fact... There's a word that parents really appreciate in German, isn't there? Selbstständigkeit? Yeah, Selbstständigkeit, which means self-reliance. It's a very strong value in Germany. And, you know, that father from 
uh, the Sound of Music was probably realistic in the 1940s, and, and the German culture has had a huge reaction to that period of time, and including how they raised their kids. And that's somewhat behind the reason for such a strong emphasis on kids having independence and freedom. Germany uh, walks the talk as a society. They pay high taxes, and part of those high taxes is uh, a right for government-funded child care. Is that correct? That's correct. It's different in every region, but in Berlin, now you have at least two years of daycare, preschool, and kindergarten free for every family. So you wrote in your book that uh, three- and four-year-olds in preschool, it's about 90% of the little kids that age are in a preschool, whereas in the United States, it's just 23%. What is it like in Germany? I mean, is that is it just considered the norm? I would think a lot of mothers would think, no, I want to have control of my kids at that age. Well, there's a very positive attitude towards daycare in general. It's seen as something that's good for kids. It's good to be around other children. It's good to learn from other adults. And for me, as an American, that was very refreshing because here I get a lot of messages that, oh, if you put your kid in daycare, that's bad for them. I I just love the way you described Ozzy's second birthday party where it was like, okay, mom, you can go home now. (laughs) Yes, I I had this idea in my head that I should be there for every big moment in my child's life. And especially birthdays, you think you should be there. You know, later I realized that kids at that age have like six birthday parties every year. (laughs) You know, one at school, one at home, Mm -hmm. one with family. But when I went to his birthday party at Kita, I wanted to stay a little bit longer and take a picture. And he wasn't even looking to me. You know, he was looking at his cake, at his friends, and I thought, oh, I'm going to take a picture and leave. This isn't a moment that I need to be in. Kita is the the word for a preschool or something? Kita is uh, kind of like a preschool and kindergarten all rolled into one. And to an American eye, Kita is chaos. (laughs) When I walk into Kita, there are kids running around, yelling, you know, playing with toys. They're outside, they're inside. There are no worksheets. There are no lesson plans. It's all about play pretty much all the time. And I think that was a little hard to get used to. But then in kindergarten, which happens to be a German word, they have this notion of a a democratic kindergarten where it's not chaos anymore, but it's certainly not sit in your class and I will teach you. The children are actually in charge, aren't they? They're directing the learning. Yes, I was told that many times that kids learn best from each other and they learn best by playing. And the Kita did have a few rules, but most of the rules were made by the kids themselves. And I had a chance to actually see this in action, where the teacher got up and said, okay, what should be the rules for our Kita classroom? And the kids would offer things very logically. Um, No hitting, you know, no standing on furniture. And the teacher would ask them, okay, why don't we hit? And the kids would come up with, it hurts. And the most important motivator for them was the other kids won't play with you anymore. And that is how they learn a lot of social skills, and they make mistakes. But the other kids let them know almost immediately. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Zasky. Her book is Achtung Baby, an American mom on the German art of raising self-reliant children. Sarah, getting back to our democratic kindergarten, I love this idea that kids sit at a round table and they generate their lessons. First of all, they generate their rules, and then they actually generate their ideas for projects. And the teachers then enable them to be productive in their projects. Talk a little more about that. You you made a beautiful example of how one kid wanted to study the body and uh, traced a full-size body on butcher paper and learned every part. 
The German Kitas follow what's called Situationansatz, which is uh, like the situation approach, or here in America, I think we call it an observational approach. It means the, the teachers take a step back and they learn what the kids are interested in and they try to follow that. So sometimes they see that a subject comes up with the kids. Like when um, the World Cup came up, they automatically made a project about soccer because why fight it? Um, mm-hmm. But they also do it more deliberately where they get the kids around and say, okay, what project should we do next? In the example that you gave, my daughter had wanted to study the human heart, and that was her suggestion. And the other kids were like, oh, just the heart. And then the teacher said, well, how about the body? And then suddenly all the kids were engaged. You know, how do the eyes see? How do the ears hear? And then they talk about what they want to learn and how they're going to find it out. So they go to the library, they go to museums, they invite in a doctor. And the whole process is really quite beautiful because that's how we learn. It's learning how to investigate and to follow your own curiosity. Now, some aspect of parenting that I think we all lose sleep over is keeping the kids just physically safe. And in Germany, the kids would have much more freedom to run around and be unchaperoned in the playground and, and so on, and, and uh, actually taking on risky play. Uh, take us to the playground in, in Germany, and, and what would you observe? Well, playgrounds in Germany are like nothing I've ever seen. They are so much more imaginative than I've seen in America, even in my childhood. They're usually very tall and have wooden towers with bridges between them that are not steady, like purposely made to shake. There are huge climbing triangles. And the parents let their kids go on these super high, dangerous-looking play structures, and they do not follow them and walk around saying, Achtung. (laughs) It's up to the kids to learn how to self-test what they can and they cannot do. So you called this turning off the (laughs) Achtung. Yes. It's really hard. (laughs) You know, reading your book, you talked about how our playgrounds have had, from a German point of view anyways, have had the the overprotection has has basically sucked the life out of many American playgrounds, and kids don't even use them as much. Yes, it's really an odd thing to look at, but the statistics of our injuries at our playgrounds that have become safer over the years, supposedly, the injuries are still high, in fact, a little higher than they were in the past. Hmm. And some people theorize that that's because when you're on a place that you think is completely safe, you take more risks than you would on a place where it Hmm. looks dangerous and makes you more cautious. And I can see that happening. And also, kids are kind of built to test boundaries. And so if they see some boring structure, they're going to climb to the top of it and jump off. You know, they're going to do something they're not supposed to do. So if you have a playground that's actually designed to appeal to that urge, it can be contained in a better way. So maybe part of the purpose of a playground is to teach a kid how not to get injured. Yes. By giving them the actual risk. Because if you don't have the risk, you're not going to learn. Exactly. That's a hard sell in America, but apparently it's common (laughs) sense in in, in Germany. We have to accept the fact that our kids are never going to be 100% safe. That's just not how life works. The kids are roaming the neighborhood, and we really have no idea what they're up to. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning how the hands-off style of parenting works in Germany in producing self-reliant and capable children. American mom Sarah Zasky raised two toddlers in Berlin, and she shares six years of her family's quirky culture clashes in her book, Achtun Baby. Her website is sarahzasky.com, S-A-R-A-Z-A-S-K-E. And Sarah, I want to get to the topic of being aware of your body and sex. 
in America, we're so careful and we're so prudish. What takeaway did you have after six years raising kids in Berlin about how do you get kids comfortable with with their sexuality and, and their bodies? Well, I had a little bit of a shock while I was there and that my daughter was taught the basics of reproduction in first grade uh, by her teacher. And I didn't know that had happened until she started telling me about it. And, you know, I thought, oh, I'm supposed to do that. But wait a minute, somebody's already covered the basics and it made it a lot mm. easier. And as I researched this more, Germans really consider it a fundamental right of everyone to know how your body works and that keeping that information from children is not allowed. So parents there cannot opt out of sexual education. Now, just because they have comprehensive sexual education doesn't mean that the kids are more promiscuous when they become teenagers. And in fact, when you look at the statistics, they're almost exactly the same for Germany and the U.S. But the statistics that are different, and this is what really drove it home for me, is that there are much more dramatically less rates of teen pregnancy, of teen abortion, and of HIV prevalence in Germany than in the U.S. And when I think about what's most important to me for my kids and their safety, I would rather them be healthy than to have them adopt a certain moral stance towards um, sex. But in, in general, Germans are much more open about information and difficult topics than Americans are. So what about things like uh, death and religion and, and facing up with their Nazi past? These are complicated issues for parents anywhere, and I would think in, in Germany, in some cases, particularly complicated. What are some of the experiences you had in, in those areas that you found interesting? Well, I think the most dramatic one is, of course, living in Germany. You cannot avoid talking with your kids about World War II or the Holocaust because mm -hmm. it is simply everywhere. Yeah. You know, and there were, there were a couple moments, you know, when my daughter saw a memorial somewhere and she asked about it. And I kind of said, that's for people who died and kind of left it at that. But then there was another one <laughs> and another one. And they even have Stoppelsteine in the streets, little golden stones mm. with the names of people who were taken away to concentration camps mm. in the days they died. Those are called stumble stones. They're little brass um, memorials in the cobblestones, right? And we see them as adults, and we see them as tourists. And I had never thought until just now that, that children are very aware of a shiny brass memorial built into the cobblestones, and it gives them an opportunity to ask, what's this? And to kind of force the parents to explain what it is. This is remembering a Jewish child that was taken away and killed. Yes, Absolutely. It's a tough thing, uh, and I know that Germany has uh, worked into the curriculum the obligation to teach about their, their fascist uh, nightmare and their time with Hitler and the Holocaust, and it's part of the curriculum, and especially in high school, and every kid will go to a concentration camp and actually confront their society's dark past. One thing that really struck me in speaking to my German friends about World War II, they all told me that they could never remember a time when they didn't know what had happened. And so what that means is that when they first learned, they were five or six. And I think about how we try to protect our kids from tough subjects. And in reality, our children are, are stronger and more resilient than we know and able, able to handle big topics like that. Sarah, what is the approach to punishment in, in Germany and spanking? What's the take from a German point of view on that? Well, corporal punishment, spanking, is illegal in Germany and has been since 2000. Illegal? Illegal. is against Whoa. the law to hit children, as it is in, in several European countries. Uh -huh. The 
perspective on that is, again, they're very against authoritarianism and perhaps, you know, using your physical power against to try to get a child to do something is perhaps the most authoritarian thing you could do. And so the perspective on punishment goes the same way. They're not very heavy handed with discipline. And I saw this a lot in Kita. They often would not interfere in kids' fights. And when they did, it was in more of a talking fashion. They would bring a kid to the side and say, well, how do you think the other child feels about that? Or what if that was you? And try to talk it through. As one of the Kita principals told me, she said, you can't force a feeling. And I, that really struck home to me. And I think about all the times I try to make my kids say they're sorry. <laughs> hmm. Because when you try to force that, you know it immediately because they say, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, well, Sarah, we've been sounding like an ad for uh, German uh, values in education of young children for the last 15 minutes. Was there anything out of the experience that you just didn't buy and you just thought was absolutely wrong and, and you're glad to get back to the United States for from a parenting point of view? Well, I had some concerns about their education system as it went on, um, especially after fourth grade. They divide into tracks. And if you are on the track to gymnasium, which is like to the university track, you're on the right path. But if you're on those other two tracks, sometimes it's hard to get off. So that would be vocational learning. Vocational, there's a middle route as well. And the culture in general kind of starts to harden up after that. It's it's hard to change careers. One of the most beautiful things I love about America is Mm. you always have a second chance here, right? (laughs) You can be 40 and change your career. And the same is not true in Germany, at least not yet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Zasky. Her book is called Achtung Baby, An American Mom and the German Art of Raising Self-Reliant Children. Sarah, let's just finish up this uh, conversation with just a thought on how counterintuitive this is. I mean, America, by definition, is, is freedom and individualism. We celebrate it. And in our parenting, it's kind of the opposite. And when we think about Germany, we think such a regimented society. And I'm not talking just goose-stepping and back in the fascist days. Even today, you just think things work on time and everything is orderly. But in the education, it's kind of flip-flopped. What are your thoughts about that? (laughs) Well, it's interesting what's happened to us in America. We have really clamped down on our kids in the name, for good reasons, in the name of safety and, and fear for their Uh, future success. But we've gone overboard, where as parents, we're trying to control the entire environment around a child, or we're scheduling them with activities because we want to pad their resume for college. If we take up their entire day like that, we don't leave them any room to make their own choices, to make their own mistakes, or even just to decide for themselves what they want to do. And that in itself is very (laughs) anti-freedom. On Germany's side, it is still a very cultural value to be on time and to do things well. But I started to see that a lot of the Substandigkeit, the self-reliance and independence comes with this heavy measure of responsibility and accountability. So in Germany, if you make an appointment with a doctor, they don't call you three times to show up. They just assume you're going to be responsible enough to do it. So that is a freedom, and it's, but it also comes with uh, some accountability. Absolutely fascinating. Sarah, if you could have one piece of wisdom that you picked up that you could splice into the culture of American parenting, after your experience in Germany, what would that be? To see our kids as capable versus incapable. If you just switch your perspective on that, then you can see the things that they are able to do or that you can teach them to do. 
as being more possible. And really, for me, I realize that's my primary job as a parent is not to protect my kid 100% and tell them how to succeed in life. It is to give them the skills to do those things on their own, to learn how to manage risk and to chart their own course for success. Sarah Zasky, thank you for writing Octoon Baby and, and congratulations for taking lessons learned in your travels and bringing them home and sharing them so eloquently. Dankeschön. Whether you're traveling alone or taking the whole family, tell us about your travel plans at 877-333-7425. We'll open the phones for your calls next on Travel with Rick Steves. My name is Lisa Dickey, and I'm with Rick Steves. My name is Lisa Dickey, and I travel with Rick Steves. My name is Lisa Dickey, and I'm with Rick Steves. Let's take a little time right now on Travel with Rick Steves to check in with you, our listeners, and find out where you're thinking of traveling to next. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Mark's calling in from Atlanta. Hi, Mark. Hey there. Um, a while back, I, I did a study abroad in Turkey. Went all over Istanbul and along the Dardanelles and had a, had a great trip. I was there for about three weeks. And when were you there? What year was that? 2015. And then I actually went the following year and uh, showed my sister around. That was before Erdogan made his power it grab. Was, it was during that time, actually. It was during the presidential election. Yeah. Um, so it's much different than here in the States. It's about 30 days of just mass campaigning, and then the election was over. Huh. Um, but the, the coup happened the following year, and I went back. <laughs> so I can't get away from uh, politics in Turkey. So you went after the coup? Uh, y- yes, sir. Erdogan wanted more power, and he used that as a uh, stunt to assume total power, which was what he had failed to do the year before during the election. Now, I just love Turkey, and I've been concerned about what is the vibe? How do you feel in Turkey now after he, he clamped down and, and, and really uh, you know, took more power and really silenced uh, opposition? What, what's the, what's well, the feeling? Are, you know, Turkey is being pulled on two different sides. On the eastern side is their border with Syria, so obviously... They're worried with that situation with refugees. It's definitely a problem, and you see it, especially in Istanbul. And then on their western side, you know, they want to be a part of Europe. Hmm. They want to be in the EU. So it's very different, rural versus urban. When you get out into the country, you know, Ankara, Manisa, Cappadocia, you get a lot more, I guess, right-wing influence. And when you go into the, the city, the metropolitan areas like Istanbul, uh, it's a lot more free-spirited and liberal mindset. So it would be the, the people in the small towns and in the Far East that would be more inclined to support Erdogan. Yeah. I guess the main thing for us travelers is, did you feel welcome? Did you feel comfortable on the streets of Turkey? If you were a, a dissident or a free-minded journalist, you'd be locked up. As an American right. walking the streets of a Turkish city these days, is it all right? I think so. The biggest thing is if you're a foreigner, you get haggled by merchants, uh, by shopkeepers. Because they're really hungry, because there's no tourism, and their whole livelihood is based on tourism. 
Absolutely. When I went in 2016, tourism mm-hmm. was down 90%. Can you imagine uh, that? Tourism is down 90%. Oh, and so many small businesses, little mom and pop, you know, shops and carpet shops and restaurants and tea houses and hotels, mm-hmm. they just they just shut the doors. Yeah, so they're extremely grateful to have you, have you there, but it is a little hostile just because right around the time of the coup, there was the bombing at the Turkish International Airport. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you feel that and you do want to stay in the touristy areas because the city of you know, 16 million people, you can lose your way very, very quickly. So hostile, meaning there are angry people that might not look kindly upon people from the West? From the West, correct. Um, And when I went for a study abroad, you know, you go out into the rural areas, people do voice that kind of opinion where outsiders are deemed as a threat to their way of life. I remember years ago, a long time ago, every time I'd go to Turkey every year and and one year, they'd say, where are you from? I'd say, America. And they'd go, oh, we love America, you know. And the next year, I'd go, they'd say, where are you from? I'd say, America. And they'd go, uh, capitalist, expansionist, right. uh, imperialist. Yeah, American imperialist. Right. That was, And I felt like they were just mouthing words that the media of the day had been uh, pumping into their brains. And one right. year, they loved America, and the next year, uh, we were the enemy. And uh, there's probably a little bit of that going on today. One one thing that was interesting, when I studied abroad in a town called Manisa, I spoke with a kid who was 19, who was in university there and wanted to come to the States for a graduate program. You know, I asked him, do you feel more a part of the Middle East or, you know, a part of Europe? And he said, heart in Middle East, mind in Europe. So my interpretation of that is they do want to be capitalists, you know, they are, they're merchants, you know, they're at the uh, Silk Road, at the crossroads of Europe right. and Asia, they're merchants, uh, they're tradesmen, so they want to make money, but at the same time, they want to keep their religion, keep hmm. what makes Istanbul and, and Turkey unique from, from Europe. Well, Turkey is such a fascinating political and religious and economic and mm-hmm. cultural mix, it's one of the reasons why, I mean, that's why it's one of my favorite places to travel anywhere in this world, and I can mm-hmm. hardly wait to get back now, post-Erdogan, <laughs> uh, attempted coup, and mm-hmm. just, to, just to talk to people and, and to recognize that there's a lot of um, intimidation to keep people in line. And as a Westerner, uh, we'll be warmly received. They, they need our money in tourism. If we use common sense, there's nothing dangerous about going there. And we'll be able right. to feel the pulse of that democracy or that struggling democracy with people-to-people connections. So, Mark, thanks so much for uh, reporting on Turkey. Absolutely. Thank you, Rick. I, I appreciate you having me on the show and big fan. Thank you so much. Happy travels, Mark. All righty. Thanks, Rick. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Debbie emailed us from Boston. And Debbie writes, I am wondering how easy it is to travel on my own or with a tour in Italy for someone who uses a cane to support a weak ankle. You know, if you are uh, not a good walker in Europe, I would remind you it's hot and crowded in the summer. To me, that's the most exhausting thing. So try to put your trip in shoulder season. Uh, But if you've got your own uh, vehicle and if you can go to small towns, that would make sense. I would remind you if you're in the big cities to take full advantage of taxis and Uber. 
Uh, if you are taking a tour, there are tours designed for people with mobility issues. Uh, one thing I like about cruising is that on a cruise ship, everything for your, your transportation and your accommodations is perfectly accessible, as accessible as any resort in America. And then every day you're parked in a port and you've got a bus designed for people who don't walk well that's uh, waiting and ready to take you on a, a little day trip on the mainland from your cruise ship. So there's different you know, degrees of travel that you could go for uh, depending on how well you're able to get around, uh, you can make a smart choice. If you'd like to be a caller on the show, whether in an open phone segment like this or to ask our guests a question, simply start out at our website at ricksteves.com radio. Send us your email address where it says sign up for radio news. That's how we can notify you of our recording sessions and explain what we'll be talking about next. And I promise we won't use your email address for anything else. It's Listener Travel Plans right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Sandra's calling in from St. Albans in West Virginia. Hi, Sandra. Oh, hello, Rick. I am delighted to be talking to you. Well, thank you. We're delighted to have you on the line. Um, I'm a Madjar, and I'm going to Hungary. I've never been to the homeland of my family. Totally excited. We're also going to visit Romania, Bulgaria, and Serbia. You know, Sandra, you said you're a Magyar, is that right? Magyar. I've never heard somebody introduce themselves that way. So that's the ancient Hungarians. So you call yourself a Magyar rather than a Hungarian. Well, both, either. Uh-huh. I <laughs> like that. When I meet actual Hungarians, sometimes they say, oh, Magyar. Magyar. A thousand years ago, the Magyars decided, hey, this <laughs> is our place. And they uh-huh. settled down, and the rest is Hungarian history. Isn't that the case? Oh, okay, so you're going <laughs> to... So exciting. You, you want to go back to Hungary, and then, and then where else are you thinking of traveling? We're going to be going through Romania, Bulgaria, and Serbia. We're starting out in Budapest, and we've added two and a half to three days at the front end to spend in Budapest. I am just so excited to get your input on some of the sites that we hope to see. Okay, well, you've got quite an exciting trip that you're dreaming up, and Budapest is pretty straightforward and basic. You know, there's lots of good guidebooks to Budapest, and you've got all the details on the different baths. They say, you know, when you dig a hole in in Hungary, you hit hot water, and that's the Mm -hmm. case in Budapest. There's all sorts of neighborhood baths, and there's famous ones, and there's humble neighborhood ones, and one way or another, you want to have that experience. But what really intrigues me, Sandra, is you're going to, you said, Serbia, Romania, and Bulgaria. And yes. I just love that idea. Are you going to be driving or taking public transportation? We're looking to book a, a guided tour, but mm-hmm. we'll be on our own, basically, yeah. in Hungary. I was just in uh, Bulgaria and Romania filming, and I've been to Bulgaria a lot, and I was thinking Romania would be much more uh, humble and ramshackle and so on. But I was really struck by how well Romania is doing. It's a much mm-hmm. mightier country and a stronger country than Bulgaria, and uh, it's got a bigger population and bigger industry. They're both very folkloric, especially if you make the point to get out of the big cities. You'll find a, a warm welcome in the regional capitals and in the small towns and incredible diversity, especially in Romania. Uh, there's one okay. place in Romania which is right next to the border of Ukraine. It's called Mara mm-hmm. Marish. 
all over Europe, I look for these, quote, open-air folk museums where they have people who are paid to dress in traditional costumes and, you know, pretend they're living traditional lifestyles. Mm-hmm. In Mara Marsh, there's no museum. It is a living museum. And it's wow. this wonderful traditional folk life and this rural farm communities. And also remember, these are relatively poor countries, meaning mm-hmm. there are lots of guides who are looking for work that speak great English, and they're very affordable. So if you can find a good local guide in Bulgaria and Romania, it would be the best investment you could do. And there's lots of guides. I, I don't want to recommend a particular one. Just to hire a yeah. local guide to have that friend in each of those countries. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the amazing thing about Bulgaria and Romania, it'll strike you every day while you're traveling there. It just goes whoa, this is so interesting, and I haven't seen an American for three days. Where are all the tourists? This is so exciting. It's so accessible. It's so affordable. It's so tasty. It feels so friendly. It feels safe. And there's almost no tourism. There's a few famous places where you'll have some tourism, but but generally you're way off the beaten path, and you're in for the experience of a lifetime, I would say. Oh, my goodness. Um, Can you tell me, um, we have limited time in Budapest, and we were wanting to see the Opera House, the Course Fisherman's Bastion, the Hospital in the Rock, St. Stephen's, Matthias Church. Is there something else that I am missing that I absolutely don't want to not see? You've listed all the very predictable and important sites to see there. And mm-hmm. you, you go to the mineral baths and, and soak with the locals right. and have that spa mm-hmm. experience. Something Mm -hmm. I really like is a food tour. Uh, Budapest has wonderful Ah. food tours. They've also got a night scene, which is sort of eclectic, bohemian chic. Uh, They're called ruin pubs, R-U-I-N, ruin pubs. And and even if you're not a a clubber, you know, it's just a real fun angle on the culture. And as an American there, you would feel comfortable, and it's so easy to strike up a conversation in English, and that's your connection with the locals. But I think you've got it pretty well covered in Budapest, you know, people like to take a, a cruise on the Danube River there. and But otherwise, you're just going to feel the energy of a country that, if you haven't been there recently, you'll notice has really changed a lot. I, got, I hate to say it, I've never been there, um, Rick. That's why I'm so excited. And it's an interesting place to be talking with locals because they've got a government that is pretty much doing its best to derail democracy. And uh, I'm sure local people have some concerns about that. And I'm sure some a lot of people will support their administration and a lot of people will oppose their administration because they're in a, a fascinating period in their political history, just like a lot of countries are these days. Mm-hmm. So put that on your list. Make a point to talk to locals and ask questions, okay? I definitely have that on my list. I All so appreciate right. your program. All right. Take care. Thank you, Rick. Bye now. Bye. Elizabeth's on the line from Atlanta. Elizabeth, thanks for your call. Absolutely. Uh, I've been listening to your wonderful radio show. And one thing you brought up to a caller was how to get around and what to see in the very southern part of Italy, which I've not traveled, done a lot of travel to north, but not to Sicilia and mm-hmm. that area. So I would love tips. And I do travel often with a, a good girlfriend. So mm-hmm. if it's just us gals, what is the best way to see that area and be safe? I am an adventurer, but, mm-hmm. you know, try to be safe. Yep. So I'd love to get your tips. I was just in Sicily, and it is a very rewarding place to travel. I'll tell you, frankly, a lot of people are interested in going south of Rome and Naples. They've been to Italy. They want more of Italy. And uh, there's the boot, and there's the football. Uh, the boot is like the mainland, and it looks like it's kicking this ball, which is Sicily. I find Sicily has a lot more to offer than the mainland of southern Italy. 
course, there's plenty of reasons to go to the mainland of southern Italy. But Sicily is this amazing layer cake of civilizations. They've been invaded, you know, 15 or 20 times by different civilizations and all have left their mark. In the ancient times, in a lot of ways, it was the center of the, the civilized world, or the Greek world, or some of the greatest Greek towns and the most important Greek thinkers were in Greek Sicily, believe it or not. And then really? uh, in, in later periods, many times, Sicily was much more important than we give it credit for today. Sicily, of course, has its reputation as being a dangerous place with the, the godfather and organized crime and all that kind of thing. <laughs> and I've been there a lot lately. And I'm just so impressed by how they have turned the corner on the organized crime problem. It still exists, but for the tourist, you, you don't feel it. It's very comfortable. And, of course, you've got to use common sense anywhere out after dark in poorly lit, unpopulated areas or something like that. But what strikes me, Sicily really excels in food. There's something about the food scene in Sicily that is it's just a, a spirited festival. And you should put high on your list, spending a little extra money, taking a little extra interest in where you're going to eat tonight, and taking full advantage of the food scene in Sicily, for sure. But it's a multifaceted culture. It's a proud culture. People are Sicilian first and Italian second. It's hot in the summer. I think you'd try to avoid in the summer if you could. But uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, went there, I, I went there 20 years ago, and it was depressing and scary. And I've been there in the last few years, and it's just a, a celebration of good living. It's not a rich corner of Europe, but it's a, it's a joyful corner of Europe, and it's well worth exploring. Now, is there anything there particularly like, okay, do not miss XYZ, you yeah. know, do not well, miss this I, little canal I, or cave or... Are you um, going to be driving you know, or are you well, taking public transportation? I, now, I really love taking public transportation when mm -hmm. I'm in Europe, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if that's feasible. You know, Firenze mm -hmm. and Roma and all that is easy with public transportation, right? right? But what do you suggest? What do you suggest you for know, a girl who doesn't drive a stick shift? I would, <laughs> I think I would, are you alone or with, you're driving with your girlfriend? Um, yeah, probably traveling with a girlfriend, yeah. Yeah, I'd rent a car. It's, okay. Uh, do the big cities without a car. Right. There's several big cities, but the two cities you got to do is Palermo and Syracuse. Okay. So start in Palermo and finish in Syracuse. Pick up your car on the way out of Palermo and have a car for a week to tool around the countryside and do stuff where you'll be frustrated by public transportation schedules, which are kind of sparse in Sicily. Drop your car when you get to Syracuse, do Syracuse, and then fly home from Syracuse. So you could have a 12-day really? trip, one week with the car and two or three days in Palermo and two or three days in Syracuse, and you would do Sicily first class, and I would be very excited about that. I love the marketplaces in the big cities. They're just, just yes. sort of crazy and fun and full of merchants singing about their whatever they're trying to sell. And then when in the countryside, you've got great Greek ruins, you've got great Roman sites, you've got wonderful agriturismos, charming little fishing villages, uh, plenty to explore, and there are good guidebooks that can help you out in Sicily. Well, it sounds divine, and I hear it's wonderful. So, And really authentic. Italy is becoming so discovered and so crowded it and is. so touristy. In Sicily, you feel like you're there ahead of the crowds. Uh, Go there off-season because you want to have comfortable weather. In April or October, it's very comfortable. Great food, uh, friendly welcome, and half the price of Florence or Venice. Well, I love that idea, and mm -hmm. it sounds terrific. And right. I am Nancy Drew, so I'm getting my little you know, feet over there. Good. Hey, well, <laughs> let us know how your trip goes. Thanks, Elizabeth, and happy Definitely travels. Definitely will. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Isaac kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff, 
website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. This week we had studio help from the Radio Foundation in New York and from Spokane Public Radio, plus editing support from Sarah McCormick. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. Next year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.